Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest installment of the ISE podcast. We've got a great set of speakers this morning. We're going to be talking about a new book from, from Tonya Galati and also a couple of people whose stories are within that book. For those of you that follow our podcasts, we aim to bring you um, sort of uh, new, interesting um, news and views about the sort of whole early talent industry. And I think it's great to have the voices of a couple of students today, which is something that's really important and sometimes something that we, we don't listen to enough, I think. Um, so my name's Steve Isherwood. I'm Chief Exec of the ISE. And let's introduce and find out who else is on the panel. Tonya, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Tonya Galati. I am director of TG Consulting Limited, a small education consultancy set up on the 23rd of February last year, just before the UK was taken over by a global pandemic. <laughs> Perfect timing, or, or not. Yeah. Uh, Nia, would you like to go next? Yes, of course. Hi, I'm Nia. I am a third year psychology student um, at the University of Exeter. I have written a chapter for um, the book we're about to talk about. Fantastic. And Geoffrey? Hi everyone, I'm Jeffrey. I graduated in law last year and I spent the last five months or so working for Tanya as an intern at TG Consulting and I also contributed a chapter to the book. Fantastic and we'll, we'll delve into those chapters a little bit later. Tanya, why don't we start with you? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the book, the background to it and, and why you've written it and what, what you're hoping the message is that, that it will get out there? Yeah, so um, the book came about following on from the Student Sessions podcast series, which focuses on role models. Um, and over the course of the last year, I guess, we've spoken to lots of young people with really inspirational stories of overcoming challenges and adversity. And what we really wanted to do is provide them with the platform to be able to celebrate the challenges that they've overcome and to be able to showcase their experiences. Um, and secondly, we also thought that actually it would be really helpful for other young people going through similar experiences to be able to read the stories and relate um, and not feel so isolated in their struggles. So that, that's the main reason. Um, and what we also decided is instead of just publishing the book in the UK, we've published worldwide, so um, across the waters, and all profits from the book we're going to use to support students who face particular challenges to employment. Fantastic. Do you think it's something that over recent years, actually, the whole sector, you know, employers and, and universities have got better at, at tackling these issues? Or do you think there's still, still very much a long way to go? Um, I think there's pockets of really good practice and good work. I think over the years, you know, universities are very good at understanding their own demographic. And we know that not one university campus is the same as another. But I think over the last few months, given the impact of COVID on students from particular backgrounds and also what happened around Black Lives Matter and that kind of raising much more discussion around racism and access to opportunities, um, I think students have been more willing to come forward and share their own lived experiences. So actually, it's kind of a, a partnership as opposed to assumptions being made from those kind of having to support and provide students with activity and resources. Do you think people are a bit more talking to these kind of subjects? You know, if I sort of think back over the last, oh God, I've been in this game too long, sort of over 10 or 20 years, and 10 years ago, we weren't talking about things like, like mental health. It just didn't appear on the radar. Is this something that I think we are getting better at? Are more people coming forward and talking about their experiences? I think the young people that we work with are much more open and are coming forward to talk about their experiences across the themes that we cover in the book. But I also think um, there's been a lot of work done within the sector to build confidence amongst individuals to have the conversations because, you know, they're not easy conversations and it is important to ensure that whoever, you know, you're talking to feels comfortable in disclosing and sharing their story. 
because some of the subjects are quite tough. And I think it's also important that a lot of the universities in particular that have started talking a lot more to their students about some of these things are having those conversations, not just as a tick box exercise, but with a view to then taking action and working in partnership with students to enhance the student experience more. Fab, thanks, Tonya. We'll come back to you a little bit later, I think, and start talking sure. about actually what is it more that employers and, and universities can, can do as a result of um, um, some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, so, Nia, can I go to you first of all? Um, in the book, you talk about mental health. Could you just give us a little bit of background to your story and what it is that you wanted to write about? Yes, of course. So, essentially, I started struggling with my mental health um, when I went to high school. I was about 12. Um, I'd been a really confident girl, and I think I went to high school and I um, just felt super out of control in both of my home life and my school life. I had gone from a really school, small sheltered primary school to this big high school. I didn't really know who I was. I think I had a bit of an identity crisis going from this child to an, a teenager and um, I didn't really know how to cope. And I was dealing with lots of uncomfortable um, emotions and feelings and I turned to food. Um, and that was never a conscious decision of, oh, I'm not feeling great, let's not eat. But it just kind of happened. And the less I ate, the more numb I was and the more it kind of gave me this feeling of, well, it doesn't matter if everything else in my life is not OK. I have an eating like I have my eating disorder and that will get me through. Um, and my life just got really, really small as a result. Um, and, you know, it became about the food that I ate or didn't eat and the exercise I was going to do. And it was really wrapped up with schoolwork and my perfectionism. And I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, I had very few friends. Um, I was like completely numb to what I was, what was going on around me, um, kind of <clears throat> just bumbled along. And that's how I lived for a couple of years um, before it got really bad. And I was diagnosed with anorexia um, and went to, I got help for that, but basically it was all centered around gaining weight and it didn't really, wasn't really given the tools to cope with the difficulties that I had, that I was struggling with, and that ultimately was why I used my eating disorder. And long story short, it I had a couple of months of some sort of recovery and flipped into bulimia. And again, that's how I kind of lived for a couple of years. But kind of with my bulimia came huge highs and lows. And I, you know, felt really down a lot of the time. And I really struggled to get out of bed in the morning. And at this point, I was trying to juggle my A-levels. And it got to a point where I just couldn't, I got to a point where I was like, I can't live like this anymore. Throughout the whole time, I hadn't really wanted to give up my eating disorder. It kind of served its purpose in my life and I couldn't really imagine going through life without it. Um, like, I think that's a really warped thing about mental health. You know, you can know that it's really bad for you and it's damaging and it's making you really sick, but giving up feels so scary. And I think almost like you get so used to living that way for anything else it's just unknown territory and it's like well why would I give this up because I know what this is about and it stopped working you know it stopped numbing those feelings it stopped it stopped getting me through and I didn't want to do it anymore um I couldn't kind of focus on my studying I really wanted to go to university but I was just like how am I going to go to university if I can't even get out of bed some mornings and I didn't, I, I would wake up in the morning thinking I don't want, like, I just want to eat normally today. And I couldn't. And that scared me so much because I kind of realized like I was totally powerless over my eating disorder. So yeah, I got to the point where I thought I either reach out for help and I 
probably dive into recovery or I give up completely. And I'm so grateful I chose the first option. Um, and I've been in recovery for five years and yeah, my life feels so different today. And I never thought I'd get to this place that I am. And I think it's <clears throat> throughout my recovery, I've kind of, I've really felt that I want to give back. If it hadn't have been for people who gave so generously to me and who were so open to me and who just listened, I wouldn't be where I am today or I wouldn't probably even be here. And I think like it feels a bit futile to have gone through everything I, I did just to shut the door on it and pretend it didn't happen. Um, and so I feel really determined to kind of use everything that I've learned and everything that was given so generously to to give back to others. So, yeah, that's a bit about my story. <laughs> Yes, thanks for being so so open, Nia. How easy was it to get help? Because you talk about what you were dealing with, but also obviously you were going through the school system, you were getting your grades, you, you got into university. Was it something that you felt like you were living a bit of a, a parallel life to a certain extent? Yeah, it was really bizarre because I would turn up for school pretty much throughout all of this, even when I was like severely, severely like underweight. And kind of would go through school and almost just like get through the day and pretend that that wasn't a thing and come home and absolutely crash and it was just like no one kind of realized the extent of what was going on and partly maybe that was because i wasn't ready to admit it perhaps that if i had been at school and thought you know what i really want to to make this better and i had tried to seek it out seek out the support but i just kind of didn't you know i wanted to pretend that this wasn't as much as an issue as it was so yeah it very much did feel like i would I was living these two lives, you know, this one I'm really put together, everything's fine, and this other absolutely nothing is okay and I don't know how to get from one day to the next. And I'm interested around the, the university experience as well. Is it something that you were able to get support through um, as you were going through your university career? You've still got a year to go, yeah? Or you, are you halfway through your final year, are you? Yes, I'm halfway through my final year. Yeah, so my university experience has been fantastic. I took two years out before I came to university, which kind of felt really scary at the time. The idea of thinking, you know, quite a lot of people take a gap year. The idea of taking two gap years, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be so old. And I look back now and I'm so glad that I just took the time to kind of get back on my feet and then have a couple of years of, of my earlier recovery when I was around a really supportive environment. And then I came to university and I was in, in a good enough place when I started and I was kind of really I had had this level of recovery and I was like I don't want to go backwards and the university was super supportive I had reached out to them before I came and I said look it's going to be really overwhelming coming to university moving away from home trying to cook all my own food and they were like well why don't you go into catered halls so I did that for the first year um, and that was brilliant and it kind of just took all the stress away from cooking all the stress away from what to eat and what not to eat I would just go I'd have my my breakfast and my dinner all done for me and it was then a really sociable environment in which I was eating with everyone else and then kind of come second year I'd made my friends I knew where I was like it wasn't this completely brand new experience where everything was new and then I had to cope with food on top of it my university has a really good well-being center and I reached out to them at the beginning um, and they have various courses and they had mentors they call them um, and they're academic mentors and they kind of help you throughout your university experience um, and I had a mentor from first year and I still talk to her on a weekly basis today it's mainly about kind of the work side of things but I can talk her about talk to her about life things which is really helpful um, we have like a student guild 
well when it's mental health week they do a lot of publicity around that which is good and i think it's really encouraging that from the top that these conversations are happening so that students know that they can have have these conversations and where to go to um and i do think throughout the pandemic it's been so stressful i think but it, uh, among my friends i think everyone is super stressed i think it's that having your third it being third year and having third year stresses on top of pandemic like the stress of living through a global pandemic and i think people think that there still could be more done but i do think that particularly my department have gone to gone to good lengths to try and support us and help us in a way that they they can um, and there's been a lot of communications with us what we need and what we want and i think that that is really helpful um, i think you make a really good point around the the two-year gap here as you say and, and the reluctance and it, how it seems like a very long time and I've, i can imagine it does actually but actually when you think about it, you're probably going to be working for dare i say it sort of 50 years or so <laughs> and probably more as, as, as time goes by actually a couple of years out of that is is nothing and um, oh, yeah, yeah, i'm getting um, I'll come back to you in a minute, Neil. But Jeffrey, can I just bring you into the conversation? So in the book, you focus on diversity and feelings of not belonging. Could you also tell us a bit around your story and what it is that you wanted to write about in the book? Yeah, I think when, when Tonya asked me to contribute a chapter to the book and I was thinking my experiences at university and being lucky to be involved with several societies that focused on, you know, increasing engagement amongst BAME students, black students in particular, and also just working with other societies around the country to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to advance you know the stories of black students or, or increase the opportunities that they have it seemed as if it was the right topic to focus on um for the chapter i attended sit form in a, in a relatively wealthy area etc and you know that juxtaposition between the experiences of of sit form and secondary school which was a bit interesting my secondary school was, you know, mixed with people from different races and religions and backgrounds, etc. So it was never talked about. And I think, you know, as a as someone who's 11 to 16, racism and discrimination is not something that is at the forefront of your of your mind. But it was completely fine. You know, everything was normal. We talked with each other, we played with each other, all that sort of stuff. But then to go to sixth form and to realise, you know, banter is jokes which weren't actually funny or you know hidden discrimination or 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 comment or suggestions was really interesting and i think going to university in a predominantly university that has people from a predominantly low socioeconomic backgrounds and i think 60 percent of, of the student cohort is, is bame that was also really interesting and, and to to identify and to sort of see how our stories even though we came from all over the country was incredibly similar you know every black boy could recite that time where they received a joke where people thought it was funny but it wasn't funny or how someone would laugh at their the pronunciation of their name or how you know th their country of heritage was now the, the subject of of jokes you know in class or etc so that was really interesting to see how everyone who shared a particular skin color and a particular experience had the same or similar stories and i think you know writing in the book it, it was just a chance for me to reflect on that and then to you know also identify different ways that we could all work together to make sure that children who are at school now and people like me, graduates going into the workplace, have the opportunities that everyone else gets and deserves. Jeffrey, you talk about sort of saying it was 
interesting, which um, to me makes it sound like there's a, there's a level of a detachment. But uh, but when you're in the thick of this and experiencing this, I imagine it has quite a strong impact on yourself. It's not something you're just sort of you're observing as somebody to be removed. Um, could you talk yeah. a bit more about that, about what it was like to experience some of the things that you discussed? To be completely honest, when you're experiencing it at a particular age, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. And in all honesty, from my experience as sixth form, there were no personal jokes or or attacks on me personally. But what I can tell you is that coming out of that age, when you're growing up and when you're realizing, you know, the impact that that has on different people, it is a big deal. And I think, you know, being the subject of jokes about, for example, I think there was a conversation at, at sit form once we were talking about countries of heritage, you know, and some of us were from Ghana or Nigeria or this or that. And to receive questions like, well, are there libraries in Ghana or, or are there, you know, shopping centres, etc. Ha ha ha. It really isn't funny. You know, it has a, a massive impact on people, on myself when I was at school and on children who are at school today in the way they think that, you know, um, your experiences, your story, the stuff which you pride yourself on, where your family comes from, you know, the food you eat, the way you talk is the subject of someone else's joke. That has a serious impact that carries on, you know, from university to when people start their careers, etc. And I think it also links into the idea of the so-called imposter syndrome, which I, I talk about in the book, that all, all these little things contribute to a sense of someone not belonging, whether it was in their career or at school or different places of worship or whatever it might be. So, Jeffrey, do you think it has well, impacted the kind of the work you might have thought about doing? You mentioned you've been working with Tonya for the past year since you since you graduated. Yeah, I think um, at the start of university, sort of first first year, midway through second year, my ambitions were fairly limited. I can't honestly put it down to a sense of me thinking, um, it was the experiences that I've had at school or sixth form. But I just think, um, and, and this was similar across my friendship group, that we all had the same sort of similar backgrounds, et cetera, that, you know, my ambitions and where I wanted to go was limited. And funny enough and interestingly, it was only when we organized a couple of events where very high profile um, black people came to the university to do talks. For example, there was a lawyer from from a city firm and he was talking about his experiences and, and how his story was incredibly similar to all of ours and you know how he faced the same challenges that we did, that myself included, we all set up and sort of thought, well, if he can do it, why can't we all? So I, I think you know that representation of role models and, and people who come from similar backgrounds and, and have similar stories to you, um, being able to make it in the careers or, or the fields that you want to make it in is incredibly powerful. It's been incredibly powerful for me and is the reason why I think um, I aspire to be a commercial lawyer in a in a city firm somewhere. Um, you mentioned employers and what what you um, what you aspire to. Do. How have you found? Have you started interacting with employers yet? Have you got any thoughts on actually how good employers are at tackling some of the issues yeah. you talk about? Address it. Is it something that that kind of employers are, I guess, almost um, um, oblivious to in the selection process? Is it something that's conscious in your mind? You know, as you think about um, what jobs to do, what jobs you might want to apply for. Yeah, I think some employers are better than others. Some are making more progress than others. I think that's that's normal. But I think, you know, the height of the, the Black Lives Matter movement last summer did a lot to sort of put the pressure on on organizations and institutions. Because funny enough, I've always thought the onus has weirdly always been on the people who are the subjects of discrimination or inequality to do the work. It's always you start up the change, you you bring up the ideas and then we'll contribute the money or the resources to it. But 
the public perception or the debate surrounding what to do about inequality, whether it's gender or sexual orientation or religion or race, is actually the onus is now on the organisations. It's on the institutions to actually do something about it. And I think, you know, the wave of announcements that came following the global protest from corporations, whether it be the biggest banks or, or, or universities, was, well, we have to now sit up and do something about it. Whether that's genuine or not, I can't answer that but at least it's a shift and it's it's we're making progress in the right direction because students all over the countries and people people who work in, in massive corporations are now having less pressure to come up with solutions themselves and leadership of universities of firms of banks of corporations are now having to make it part of their day job to think about how to act, actively increase diversity and opportunities for everyone regardless of skin color race or, or sexual orientation i think that's a good point jeffrey at the event of george floyd last summer i think we'll see how much it has shifted the dial to use a cliche but you know the reality is despite a lot of fine words and and you know even considerable amounts of money being invested in diversity program i think some real questions to be asked around have actual you know graduate recruitment intakes change the profile of who's getting onto those programs despite all that that activities I think you're you're right in that assessment of the balance that actually it's maybe the focus has been put too much on well the individuals you've got to do X whereas actually well no come on employers what have you got to do to change in order to, to be better at this. Nia can I just come back to you because we didn't really talk about careers etc. And I was just wondering if, as you know, sort of through your journey through university, if, if you have been thinking about careers and jobs at the end of it, or is it your studies you've been focused on? What are your thoughts on careers at the moment? So I would like to go on and be a clinical psychologist, um, but you've got to go on and do a PhD um, and you've got to have relevant clinical experience. So my plan at the moment is when I graduate, um, I think I'd like to try and apply to be an assistant psychologist, which you can just do with a psychology undergrad and get a couple of years of relevant work experience before I go on and do the PhD. So that's my plan at the moment. I actually, before university, when I took my two years out, um, on the second one, I worked for um, an asset management firm. They had a school leavers scheme. They basically took on 12 school leavers and it was a bit like a mini grad scheme in a sense which actually was great and gave me fantastic experience so I kind of think if all goes to pot and I can't find any sort of psychology related work experience then you know that's given me a good kind of leg up and and hopefully you know I could kind of look into doing something along those lines if I can't find anything else. Well, it sounds like you've got good experience in a, in a couple of diverse fields in it. It's always good to have a backup plan. So yeah, I think you just articulated the great, um, one of the great benefits of doing some work experience. It can tell you what you want to do, but also maybe what, what you don't want, want to do. The mental health um, areas that you talk about, obviously that has a, to me, it sounds like there's a direct, direct connection to your experience and, and that having some impact on the, on the work you want to do. I'm interested to know actually if it's, if you think that some of the things that you've talked about about mental health, if that, in a sense, has you've been able to separate that from actually thinking about jobs and careers, or have you sort of paused your job and career thinking, or do you think that actually, um, you know, there may be still employers who you might not want to talk to some of this stuff about? Do you think some of those sort of stigmas still exist, or or is it okay to be transparent? 
I definitely think a stigma still exists. Um, I think that I've been really lucky that I, every time I've opened up, I've never had a bad reaction as such. And I, I don't know how much of it's internalized stigma and how much of it is societal. And actually it's been having conversations like these and, and, and they have been so rewarding and people have shared back and said, you know what, I've had a really similar experience or my best friend has had a really similar experience. When I apply for um, jobs on my CV and stuff, I didn't actually take my A-levels when I was meant to take my A-levels because I was in treatment. Um, so I always get questioned, what was the reason that you didn't do that? And I've definitely felt at times more uncomfortable about saying, it, it normally goes through I wasn't very well, you know. It, ideally, if I was to be employed by someone, I'd like to say, oh, look, I was really struggling with my mental health. I had to take some time out. But I don't always necessarily feel so comfortable doing so. Um, so, yes, I definitely think that having been through the experiences that I have been through, it feels super important to me to be part of an organisation and part of a company that kind of facilitates these conversations and that these conversations aren't stigmatised and that people feel like they can have them. But I also think that like it's unrealistic to think, and I think that's probably partly the reason that I want to go into the field of work that I am, because I do believe that there will be lots of open, honest conversations, but I don't think that that's the norm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We've seen um, some research that talks about what a student thinks about employers talking around oh, a whole range of sort of diversity inclusion issues. And I think there's still this perception that the employers aren't always believed or employers don't always match their words with their with their actions. And I, I guess I see it from both points of view, whereas I think sometimes employers say we just want to know the information so we can help make a decision. Whereas actually applicants think that it's it's it is going to be held them against them. And I suspect there's there's still a bit of good and bad practice on both sides there. Jeffrey, can I just ask a similar question to you talking about sort of em employers? Because as I just mentioned, I've seen this research that says that overall students, the, the general perception is that basically it's still what you look like and who you know that gets you that graduate job. Um, do you think that is the realistic perception of students? Is that what people think is really going on with employers behind the scenes? That's a good question. Somewhat yes and somewhat no. I think who you know and what you know and what you look like is still a big factor in who gets a graduate job and what university you attend or whatnot. But I also think that, you know, credit has to be given where it deserves. And in terms of, you know, firms and companies, I think are making active um, steps towards making sure that people from underrepresented groups have more opportunities to apply for graduate jobs and to get interviews and, and to get places. Um, I can think of organisations such as Rare Recruitment, in terms of law firms and how you know firms are now actively working with people like that to make sure that people from underrepresented backgrounds low socioeconomic environment have the same opportunities to to land graduate jobs at these these firms i mean just to give an example i participated in a in a scheme called um, aspiring solicitors and we were mentored by lawyers from sky right and it was all, and all of us were from either a BAME background or another underrepresented group and it was incredibly helpful in terms of you know, getting to know the legal sector in, in getting ahead of applications and understanding what what lawyers do and how to apply for jobs and all that sort of stuff so i think there are the right steps are being made could there be more, more progress of course um we can't expect it to be fixed overnight one thing that i'm a big fan of is this you know looking at someone's application in the context of where they went to school where they live you know their socioeconomic background their race etc so you're getting a much bigger and complete picture than just their A-levels or the university they went to. What I think a lot of companies are doing now is 
if someone gets a, a three Bs at A level, but they attended school in a relatively poor area where the average A levels was, I don't know, D, D or CCC, they hold that in the same regard as someone who got A star, A star, A star from a school which is incredibly well supported, is in an area of relative wealth and all that sort of stuff. So I think things like that will go a long way in making sure that people who deserve the opportunities are getting them. Thanks, Jeffrey. Tonya, can I just come back to you? Just as a result of publishing, but you know, we're really grateful to Nia and Jeffrey for being so open with their with their stories. And obviously, you've spoken to a, a greater number of mm. the students as well who've contributed to this book. I mean, are there any themes that have come through for you in terms of actually what employers and universities could be doing more of? You know, policies and procedures, practices, all these things that our industry should still be focusing on and, and addressing. Um, yeah, I mean, just as a note, Nia and Jeffrey are fantastic, as are all the other authors. We've got 25 amazing young people that have shared their stories around adversity, you know, LGBTQ, racism, mental health, toxic masculinity, imposter syndrome, you know, a plethora of topics. I think what's come out for me is actually this whole sense of um, students still feeling either, you know, within an educational setting or when they go into employment, feeling that they've got to be somebody that they're not. And I think that is exhausting. I think to have to pretend every day that everything's okay when it isn't or have to pretend that you're somebody else just because you feel that's how you need to be to fit in. You know, I just think it's so sad because everybody should be able to kind of live their lives as their own unique self. So I think one of the main outcomes for me from having read all of the stories, I think is actually across, you know, educational institutions and within employer organisations. Yes, there's lots of activity going on. But I think often it's perceived as a tick box exercise, whereas actually it should be kind of part of an everyday experience. I think there's a, a need to encourage more sharing of kind of lived experiences I think there's there should be an encouragement that everybody should be their own unique self you don't have to speak a certain way or you know pretend to be somebody that you're not because that's not right and that's what's fueling a lot of um these discussions you know it leads to mental health challenges it's just not a way to be and I think you know we have got a long way to go in terms of you know, still opening up some more of these conversations, but also as kind of Jeffrey mentioned there, you know, thinking about stereotypes and role models to kind of help break down some of these barriers. What do you think it will be that will help kind of, I guess, fuel that that, that change that, that we want to see? Um, I think it's a bit of everything. I, I think it is, you know, and really understanding the students that we're kind of working with. I think that's one part of it. But the other thing I think is, to have the conversation, people need to be confident in having those conversations. You know, understandably, particularly around Black Lives Matter, we had lots of conversations with clients saying, you know, we want to kind of really break down some of these conversations with our students. We're not sure on how to approach it. We don't want to offend anybody, but at the same time, we know it needs to be addressed. So some of it, I think, is lack of confidence in how to have the conversations and how to facilitate some of that discussion. But I think what's important is once those conversations are facilitated and information does come out from students, it's important to then use that to do something meaningful. All of the work that we've done, you know, that students focus, we've done in collaboration with students. You know, this, this book, it's not about TG Consulting, what we've done, it's a, the students, it's the students project. All we've done is given them a platform to be able to share their story. And actually what we found is, you know, by association, people that have then known the authors, students have then come to us and said, well, I want to share my story, I want to be involved. So it just builds that confidence across the different audiences.
And is there anything that you're experiencing where you're seeing with employees of, you know, what's the really good stuff that's happening out there? Is there anything you can think of any examples that, you know, listening to the audience that will be tuning into this podcast, it'll be a mixture of employers, universities, suppliers to, to the industry. Is there kind of some, some really good stuff you think that other organisations who want to be better should be aspiring to do? I think there's pockets of things happening and I don't think it'd be right for me to kind of you know, reel all of those off. But I would, you know, just refer to one conversation that I had with Laura at Clifford Chance when we spoke. Um, we had a bit of a virtual coffee, as everyone's been doing over the last year, um, just talking about some of this and this whole perception that students, when they go to interviews, have to pretend to be somebody they're not and talk a certain way. And actually, some of the stuff that they've done at Clifford Chance is, um, you know, make sure that they've got individuals in the room that actually speak how they would speak on a daily basis. So it's not all pretense, you know, and it helps students think, oh, actually, well, actually, they speak a little bit like me and that's OK. And I know Clifford Chance is one of the organisations that Jeffrey's been particularly pulled towards just because of the way that they present themselves as being kind of really open to change and kind of really involving students and taking forward those opinions but I think you know there's pockets across the piece but I think different sectors can learn from other sectors it's not like a one-size-fits-all. Yeah agreed and um, yes and they do do great work at Clifford Chance I thought it's also quite interesting um, that actually a number of law firms Clifford Chance included have also you know they're also thinking beyond just the recruitment phase it's actually um, if they do better in the hiring sphere actually it's about retention as well and you've got to have a culture where people can mm. um, feel like they belong and it's quite interesting to see the agenda move on to that as, as well. But it's also thinking about the transition so you know universities have got really great student support services you know student discloses a disability or a mental health challenge and they have the support there throughout their time at university I think the struggle potentially is when those students then transition into the world of work it's actually that pastoral care if you like doesn't necessarily then correlate not having the support you're used to having is really hard I think there's something there I think there's there's probably more that can be done to kind of connect the support services that universities provide which I get they they have funding for but I think there, there is a bit of a gap in terms of that um you know that transition for students to to really feel that they are transitioning not just dropping off you know a cliff well, yeah. i like that word transition i think it's one that we don't use often enough actually because that's what we're talking about it's not a switch mm. from one mode to the other you know the whole there's something about the weaving together isn't there of, of education yeah. in the world of employment and, and managing those, those transitions Fantastic. That's been a really great sort of 35 minutes um, conversation, guys. And Nir and Jeffrey, really uh, thank you very much for telling us your stories and, and giving us some really good good insights. Tonya, give us a plug for the book. When's it coming out? When can we get hold of it? Oh, it's available on Amazon and in bookshops worldwide from the 1st of March. Uh, as I said, all profits go towards supporting students who face disadvantage uh, in getting into employment. And we will be running a live book launch on the 1st of March as well. So look out for the invite. Fantastic. Excellent. We'll get it up those Amazon bestseller list. That's the important. Oh, yeah. <laughs> OK, thanks again. Uh, thanks very much. We really so do appreciate much. you, um, Thank you, you, you guys taking the time out to, to take Thank part. You. Thanks for having us. Thank you. No trouble at all. Um, so we'll wrap up the podcast there. Please do go to visit the Insights page on the IC website where you'll see a whole range of other podcasts and webinars. Um, so once again, thank you very much. Take care, everybody.